0: The Rookie is a free serialized audiobook meant for mature audiences, written and performed by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. For links to order a young adult version of this book, without all the cussing, in print, ebook, or audiobook, visit scottsigler.com therookie one word. This podcast contains mature situations, adult language, and lots and lots of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, junkies. Welcome to episode number three of The Rookie Adult Version. I hope you are enjoying the story. Those of you who haven't heard the adult version before, I hope you are digging this alternate take. I finished the first draft of Shakedown, the Crypt Book One. Whoop, whoop! It's finally finished. That is now over at Athon Publishing and also with Big John Biscara, the Siglaverse continuity czar. So the Athon editor and Big John will go through it, give me notes back. I will get to work on the second draft. I've got to start planning for Crypt Book 2 while Book 1 is still fresh in my noggin, so that's what I'll be working on for the next couple of weeks, week, whatever, somewhere in that ballpark. Hey, hey, are you signed up for my text alerts? Text the word PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to 855-955-5095. We update you about new episodes, live streams, new books, new t-shirts, new merch, and any earth-shattering news that might pop up. So again, text PODCAST to 855 5095 Let me get you caught up on the story so far, and then we're all going to go jump a motorcycle through a flaming hoop. Previously on The Rookie, Quentin Barnes signed with the Ionath Krakens, a Tier 2 team, and will finally escape the Purest nation. But first, he must pass the physical and mental tests required by the GFL Combine. As he leaves McCovey behind, is he ready for the Big Bad Galaxy? And is the Big Bad Galaxy ready for Quentin Barnes? Seven days after signing the Kraken's contract, Quentin Barnes left the Raiders' locker room for what he hoped was the last time. He'd left them with a 35-14 win over the Sigurd Norseman and another PNFL championship. In his left hand, he carried his duffel bag. In his right, he carried the PNFL championship MVP trophy. High One knew he'd earned it, with a record-setting 24-28, 363-yard performance. That and four TD passes. Not a bad day's work. He walked outside, where the ever present sound of the atmosphere processor greeted him. He hated that fucking noise, and he hated this place. A hundred people waited for him, many of them wearing the blue tunics of the church. Most of the others, and even some of the tunic wearers, wore some kind of raider gear shirts, hats, or banners. He looked out at a throng of silver and black most of it Raiders jerseys marked with a number 10, Quentin's number. Once again, his eyes searched for a certain face that he did not yet know, for a pair of eyes that looked like his, for a smile that only a parent could have for a child. And once again, he saw nothing but strangers. The crowd surrounded him. At seven feet tall, he towered over everyone. Kids thrust message boards at him, begging for his thumbprint and maybe a few words. Oh, Elder Barnes, you're the greatest. What a great game. Can you sign this to Anna? Elder Quentin, sign my pad, please. They called him Elder, a term of respect, even though he was no more a part of the church than the Cretarachian occupiers. He didn't bother to correct anyone. Stedmar Osborne was waiting for him, leaning against a jet black limo. Sammy and Frankie and Dean his ever-present bodyguards, waited as well. Quentin signed quickly, but he signed every message board thrust his way. He didn't have time for personalized messages, but he pressed down thumbprints as fast as he could. The satisfied kids and their parents started to drift away as he kept signing. At the end, the weak children finally found their way to him. His heart sank as he looked at some of them. More than a few had Hirops disease. All of them, assuredly, from McCovey slums, where the round bugs grew to the size of house cats. One of the boys, dressed in the blue tunic of a church ward, was missing an arm. Well, what happened to you? Quentin asked the smiling boy. My family lived on an ore hauler over on the north coast. The boy's eyes were wide with hero worship. One of the engines blew and I got hurt. You here with your family? The high one took them, Mr. Barnes. The boy still wore a smile on his face, as if his family's tragedy was the most pleasant of conversation. They died in the explosion. The holy men have told me it was part of the high one's plan. I'm in the church now. Someday I'll be confirmed. Quentin smiled sadly at the boy. An orphan. Without a family sponsor, he had little or no chance of being confirmed. Not unless he could run a 3.840 and haul in passes with that one arm. This boy would spend the rest of his life in the mines. But at least the boy's parents hadn't abandoned him. He shook away the thought. Who was he to question his parents? Maybe they were out there somewhere. Millions had fled the planet during the cleansings, fled, or died. Maybe they just couldn't find him. Right. They couldn't find the most famous athlete in all the purest nation. He pressed his thumbprint to the boy's message board. Quentin opened his duffel bag and handed the boy his sweaty game jersey. The boy's eyes widened to white marbles dotted with flecks of blue. Take it, kid. The boy dropped his message board as he grabbed the jersey with his one arm. He clutched the jersey to his chest, his face the very picture of joy. Let's go, Quentin. I ain't got all day. Quentin looked over at Stedmar, nodded to him, and knelt to pick up his bag. He paused there, looking at the bag, then reached in and started passing out the contents. To each of the remaining kids he gave something. Shoes, game pants, a t-shirt, even the bag itself. When he had nothing left to give, he stood and walked past the clamoring children to the waiting limo. Stedmar was laughing at him. (laughs) You traveling light, kid? Quentin shrugged. I don't need that stuff anymore, sir. He had to look down at Stedmar, who at six foot two was a full ten inches shorter than Quentin. One of the bodyguards held the door. Quentin and Stedmar got in the back. The bodyguards drove the limo towards the spaceport, a mere five minutes away from the stadium. I'm surprised you didn't give away the trophy, kid. Quentin held it out. I saved that for you, Mr. Osborne. The smile vanished from Stedmar's face. Don't you fuck with me, kid. No, sir. Four years ago, you found me and gave me a chance. I'm off this planet because of you. Stedmar slowly took the trophy. He looked at it, a strange expression on his face, then looked back at Quentin. I made a pretty penny on you, Quentin. I won't lie to you about that. I was already underpaying you, and I sold that same contract to Tier 2 where it's not even close to what you're worth. Quentin shrugged. It doesn't matter. I'll be able to renegotiate next year. Sure you will, unless by some crazy fluke the Krakens make it to Tier 1. Then you're a protected player for two years, and they keep paying you what you're making now. I'll make the money back eventually, Mr. Osborne. Stedmar nodded. Somehow, I know you will. But listen, kid, you're in for a lot of changes. Some people like the big time, some don't. I've seen a lot of nationalites go out system with big dreams, and most of them, well, they come running back. They can't handle being in the same cities with the aliens, being on the same buses, shuttles, transport tubes. I mean, have you ever seen a Sklawner up close? Stedmar's face wrinkled with disgust. You can see right through the friggin' skin, and they drool. It's, it's a big fucking adjustment. I'm not leaving to make friends. I'm going to win a Tier 1 championship. And I hope you do, kid. Just remember that if you don't like the Galaxy, you've always got a home here with the Raiders. (laughs) Yeah, just how do you think your Raiders will do next season, Mr. Osborne? Stedmar looked out the window. I don't think we'll be worth a dead round bug. But you've still got something to learn, Quentin. Aw, you're not going to give me the holy man speech, are you? I got that from Coach Graber. (laughs) Come on, kid. You know me better than that. I don't buy into the church any more than you do. What you gotta learn, Quentin, is that time always wins. And there's always someone to take your place. I won't be able to replace you next year, or the year after that. But you know what? Someone's gonna line up at quarterback for the Raiders. The team won't shut down because you're gone. We won't win another championship next season, but eventually, we will. And when that happens, there'll be some other quarterback coming out of that locker room. Mob by kids wanting autographs. Quentin smiled politely. Stedmar was the owner, after all, and he deserved respect. He also had the power to have Quentin whacked any time he saw fit, and that definitely merited respect. But Stedmar clearly didn't understand football. Yes, sir, Mr. Osborne. Stedmar grinned, as if he'd just passed on some great pearl of wisdom and now felt better of himself for the charity. We'll have you things shipped to the Kraken's team bus. The league wants you to go straight to the Combine. Don't I get a chance to meet the team? The coaches? Stedmar shook his head. That's not the way it works, kid. You've got to go to the Combine to make sure you're not using any disguising technology to hide gene modification or cybernetic implants or anything like that. But I haven't got any of that Bush League shit. Don't sweat it, kid. Every rookie has to go through it. Besides, it's a chance for you to see the home planet of our beneficial rulers. Stedmar spat the last word out, like it was a poisonous spider crawling around inside his mouth. Cretorac. What's the Combine like? I mean, I've heard lots of stories. You mean the stories like how it used to be a prison station. How they take samples from all over your body. How they jack your brain into an AI mainframe to test your analytical powers. How they threw you in a cage with a live Grinkus mudsucker to test your reflexes in a life-and-death situation? Quentin looked out the window. Yeah. Yeah, it's stuff like that. I don't know, kid. It's probably all bullshit. The League doesn't want the merchandise damaged, if you get what I'm saying. The red and yellow buildings of the city gave way to the wide-open spaces of the spaceport tarmac. Disabled anti-orbital batteries dotted the landscape Rusted and pitted with 40 years of neglect. The huge relics were once capable of taking out a dreadnought as far as a light year away. Or so the story went. Quentin's stomach quivered. A chill filtered through his body. The anti-orbital batteries marked the edge of the spaceport. He'd soon be on the shuttle, and after that, on the ship that would carry him to the Combine. Quentin clasped his hands together to stop their shaking but he couldn't hide his fear from Stedmar. Pre-flight jitters, kid? Quentin looked out the window, then nodded. On the tarmac, a shuttle shot straight up, probably headed for the same ship he'd soon be on himself. I'll never get that, kid. You go out on that field and those animals are trying to rip your fucking head off, and it doesn't bother you at all. But you act like a little kid when it comes to simple space travel. Quentin shrugged and kept looking out the window. Tier 2 meant more flying, a lot more flying, than his four or five yearly trips with the Raiders. He didn't have a choice. The car slowed to a stop. One of Stedmar's bodyguards opened Quentin's door. Stedmar handed Quentin a mini message board. Your passport's in there. So is a Kraken's playbook. You need your thumbprint to access either file, but don't get careless with it. Thumbprints can be faked. And plenty of people would love to get their hands on a GFL passport. Just mind your manners, Quentin. You've got no experience dealing with these other races. And sometimes they can find just about anything offensive. Watch more. Talk less. Quentin took the pass and slid out of the car. He leaned back in to look at Stedmar. As soon as they put a football in my hands, everything will be just fine, Mr. Osborne. Stedmar smiled and nodded, an expression on his face that seemed both proud and slightly condescending. Tear him up, kid. Quentin turned and walked through the doors. He didn't bother looking back. There was nothing he wanted to see on this planet, and nothing he ever planned on seeing again. An excerpt from the book, The GFL for Dummies, by Robert Otto. The GFL's three-tier system is often a source of confusion for neophyte fans. While most understand the concept of Tier 3 as feeder teams, or what the old Earth NFL used to call minor leagues, the interaction between Tier 2 and Tier 1 is a little more complicated. Currently, there are 280 registered Tier 3 teams spread throughout the galaxy. These are official Galactic Football League franchises, registered with the Kretorakian Empire, and controlled by the Empire Bureau of Species Interaction, or EBSI. In truth, the EBSI does little to control Tier 3 other than to provide the same rules of play that govern the upper tiers, and to provide licensed referees from the Referees Guild. There are 24 Tier 3 conferences. Most Tier 3 conferences operate on a single planet some like the purest nation football league feature interplanetary play conferences have around 10 teams and on average play a 9 game season plus any conference playoffs or tournaments the season culminates in the 32 team tier 3 tournament each conference champ is invited as are eight at large teams note due to religious preferences the pnfl does not participate in the tournament In this grueling tournament, a team plays every three days until a champion is crowned. The tournament is affectionately known as the Two Weeks of Hell. Tier 3 is an individual entity, separate from the other two tiers. Tier 2 and Tier 1, commonly called the Upper Tiers, are actually two divisions of the same league. If Tier 3 is considered minor leagues, the 76 Upper Tier teams constitute the major leagues of professional football. Most fan attention, naturally, focuses on the 22 Tier 1 teams. Tier 1 teams are evenly divided into the Planet Division and the Solar Division. The top three teams from each division make the six-team Tier 1 playoff. The two teams with the best record have a bye, while the remaining four teams compete in the opening round. The winners of the opening round games play the top teams, and the winners of those games meet in the GFL Championship. But where there are winners, there are always losers, and that's where Tier 2 comes into play. While the top Tier 1 teams compete for fortune and glory, the worst two teams are dropped from Tier 1 and must compete in Tier 2 the following season. There are six Tier 2 conferences the Human Conference, the Tower Conference, the Key Conference, the Hurrah Conference, the Sklorno Conference, and the Quith Irradiated Conference. The winners of each conference plus two at-large teams, determined by league officials, compete in the Tier 2 playoffs. The two teams that make it to the final game move up to Tier 1 the following year to replace the two demoted Tier 1 teams. This is the goal of every Tier 2 team at the beginning of the season, and is such a dramatic accomplishment that the actual Tier 2 championship game is almost an afterthought. The Tier 2 championship is more like a scrimmage, as neither team wants to incur injuries. Why don't the teams want to risk injuries? Because the Tier 1 season begins two weeks after the Tier 2 championship game. Tier 2 teams only have a brief respite from battle before they are thrust into the meat grinder that is Tier 1. This system successfully produces intense play all year long, particularly among the Tier 1 teams near the bottom of the standings. To drop into Tier 2 cost a team untold billions of revenue in network coverage and merchandising. Book 2. pre-season. He waited for it. He waited for the punch-out. His pulse raced in a way it never did on the football field. In a panicky way. He felt anxious and tried to control his breathing. This is your 14th flight. Everything went fine before. The ship started to vibrate, just a little. A thin sheen of sweat covered his hands, which clutched tightly to his playbook message board. They were about to drop out of punch space and back into what people once called reality. This is the most statistically safe method of travel in the whole galaxy. Statistics didn't stop newscasts, however, especially newscasts of passenger ships forever lost in punch space or the horrific remains of a ship that met some stray piece of debris during the punch-out back to relativistic speeds. They called it the reality wave, the feeling that washed over the ship when it dropped out of punch space and back into regular time. You'll be fine, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. His breath seized up, and he squeezed his eyes shut as the shutter hit. That sickening feeling of splitting or spreading. He knew everything blurred, himself included. He'd seen that blurring the first time he'd flown, and seeing it once was enough. Oh, hi, one, oh, hi, one, oh, shit, oh, shit. And then it was over. He forced himself to relax, forced open his tightly clenched teeth. He opened his eyes. The observation deck was still there. Quentin slowly let out a long-held breath. Everyone else on the observation deck looked relaxed. Everyone else always did. He liked to tell himself that they were just oblivious to the danger, rather than tell himself to stop being such a pussy. Four seasons in the PNFL had taken him to every major city in the purest Nation. He'd seen all four planets: Mason, Solomon, Allah and Stuart, as well as most of the colonies. So space travel was nothing new to Quentin, but this time it was different. This was his first trip alone, without the familiarity of his teammates. But on this flight, he certainly didn't suffer for lack of attention. On a ship full of purest Nation businessmen, the league's MVP never went wanting for a drink or a dinner or some fat old bastard looking to shake his hand. This one guy in the ship, Manny Sayed, he followed him everywhere, trying to get Quentin to endorse his luxury yacht company. Quentin wasn't endorsing anything just yet. He didn't want to associate himself with one company, before he signed with an advertising firm that could connect him to the hundreds of industries trying to cash in on the phenomenal marketing power of the GFL. The distance of this trip also made it different. The purest Nation was only 20 light-years across at its widest. Most flights took only half a day. This time, however, he was at the edge of the galactic core, at Cretarac, the end of a three-day journey of some 45 light-years. Quentin stared out the huge observation window, looking into space as the passenger liner gradually slowed to a halt some ways off the Kretorakian orbital station Emperor 2. It was a huge construct, bigger than anything Quentin had ever seen. Hundreds of ships surrounded the station, all a respectful distance away. The tiny flashing dots that were shuttles constantly flew back and forth from the ships to the station like a glowing rainstorm simultaneously falling towards and away from the mile-long piers that jutted away from the station's equator. He heard the rhythmic clunk of a now-familiar footstep. Quentin grimaced, waiting for the fat voice to speak. If you think this is big, you should see Emperor One. It was Manny Sayed, his ever-present and never-invited companion of the last three days. It's almost twice as big. He bore the forehead tattoo in the blue robe of a confirmed churchman, a big robe to cover his wide girth. He also brandished a half-dozen rings fashioned from the rare metals of the galaxy and a Wopal necklace that glowed with a suffused silvery light. Manny's left leg was missing just below the knee, yet he managed to turn even his handicap into a show of wealth with a platinum, jewel-studded prosthetic leg that announced his presence wherever he walked. Three days ago, the ostentatious show of wealth on a man wearing the blue took Quentin by surprise. The ship was full of such men, businessmen who paid lip service to the tenants of the church, but also bore the trappings of a more powerful religion, the religion of commerce. I'm just taking in the scenery by myself if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. Manny stood next to Quentin and looked out the bubble-like viewport. That's a hell of a sight. Quentin shook his head and sighed. It's ironic, but Credorak is somewhat like the purest nation. No non-Kretorakians are allowed on the planet. All transgalactic activity is handled on one of the five orbital stations. But while we do it for religious purposes, the Kretorakians do it for reasons of defense. Why do they need to worry about that? They rule the whole damn galaxy. <laughs> well, well, if you add it up, there's two trillion humans, Key, Hurrah, Sklorno, and Lee Key who'll do anything to end that rule. Patriots attack Kretorak and garrisons all over the galaxy every day. Imagine what they'd do if they could actually land on the Kretorakian homeworld. Quentin noticed that Manny used the word patriots instead of terrorists. They think all the other races are too warlike to be trusted. Don't forget your history, my son. They hid their sentience from the rest of the galaxy for over two centuries. They just sat there and listened to the rest of us killing each other. And no offense, Mr. said, but I've had my history lessons. I'd like to be by myself now. Well, you're headed to the Combine, am I right? Quentin nodded. Manny pointed to a bright star off the port side. That's it right there. Quentin leaned into the window and stared at his future. What's it like? Manny shrugged. Looks like any other station, really. Used to be a prison station, where the Kretorakians shipped their prisoners of war during the takeover. Ah, come on. That's just a myth. I'm afraid it's quite true, my son. From 2643 to 2659, the station that is now the Combine was one of the worst places to be in the entire galaxy. They kept thousands of prisoners there. Not that many people made it out. And those that did were never the same. Why is that? Torture. Interrogation. The Kretorakians wanted to learn everything they could about their new subjects. And they view prisoners of war as property. Kredorakians breed in the billions. And they only live for 10 or 15 years so life and death doesn't mean quite the same thing to them as it does to us. Great. So I'm headed to a former prison station that used to torture and execute millions. Manny smiled and reached up to clap Quentin on the shoulder. Oh, come on, my son. You're on your way to the GFL. Hell, if I made it out alive, a big kid like you will have no problems. Quentin looked inquisitively at the fat man. You are in the Combine? Manny's smile faded, and he shook his head. Not the Combine, kid. You might say I was an original tenant. Quentin's eyes went wide with surprise. He hadn't met many veterans of the takeover. The majority of soldiers who served in that short-failed war were long since dead. The Kretorakians fought viciously and rarely left their enemies alive. Which planet did you fight on? Allah. Manny stared out the viewport. Allah, right on the homeworld itself. They only managed to land four ships. Our boys in the sky destroyed about 400 others. We like to remember that we destroyed 99% of the infidels, but that last 1%, that was all they needed. High one knows that was all they were planning for with their strategy of victory through overwhelming numbers. The Kretorakians packed one million soldiers into each landing vessel, packed them in there like a gas, filling up every nook and cranny. And they came out like a gas, too, an endless cloud of them. We had a half million soldiers on the ground. So just like that, we were outnumbered ten to one. Manny's voice trailed off, the memory etching a tired, sad expression on his face. What was it like? The fighting, I mean. (laughs) <laughs> well, don't believe what the holy men write in the history books, kid. It wasn't a fight. It was a slaughter. They move so fast, flying in low, millions of them. So many you could barely make out an individual amongst the masses. You seen the sparrows flocking on Allah? Quentin nodded. Well, think of that, except they're so thick they darken the sky, the entire horizon, and each one carries a little entropic rifle. I remember the first wave came flying over the hill, and we let them have it. Sonic cannons, laser sweeps, shrapnel dust, you name it. We killed thousands of them, tens of thousands, but the rest just poured over us. I was hitting that first wave. Quentin didn't want to look at Manny's leg, but he had to, then looked up again. Did the rifle take off your leg? Manny smiled, a sad smile, with no humor in his eyes as he looked into some faraway memory. No, my son, I did that myself. I was hit in the shin. I don't know why I didn't go into shock like most of my friends did when they were hit. I looked down, and my leg was just disintegrating. Down towards my foot, and up my leg as well. Those entropic rifles. If you don't get to the wound fast, there's nothing left of you. I got out my hatchet, and I just swung it. Quentin winced at the thought of such horror. Manny's eyes refocused, and he looked at Quentin. Well, anyway, we beat off that initial attack. My friends, the few that were alive, managed to stabilize my wound. But the bats came at us again. There had to be at least 200,000 in that wave. I watched every one of my friends disintegrate within 30 seconds. That's how fast it was over. 30 seconds. Do your history books tell you that? Quentin shook his head. The history books tell us the fight went on for days. Right, figures. It was over just like that. For some reason, the High One spared me, and they just shot everyone around me while I stood there, firing away, killing a few as they ignored me. The funny thing is, when I got back home, all the Holy Men called my survival a miracle. They said the High One was watching over me. I guess there were only a few miracles to go around that day. There weren't any available to all my friends, to the 490,000 men that died that day. When everyone else was gone, the bats surrounded me and told me to surrender or die. Regardless of what I'm told awaits me on the other side, I'm not partial to dying. They drug me up and shipped me off to what's now known as the Combine. Quentin waited for more of the story, but Manny said nothing. What was it like? What did... what did they do to you there? Manny shook his head and forced a smile. A practiced businessman smile. I don't talk about that anymore, my son. High one saw fit to see me through, but don't you worry about it. It's a different world now. The Kretorakians run everything, and they're very fond of the GFL, so they won't hurt the players. I know a lot of nationalites think you're a race trader for leaving... But I hope you do well. Just try not to get killed in the first season. That's always embarrassing. Yeah, I'll do my best. A flock of five Kretorakians flew onto the observation deck in a sudden blur of motion. Just as quickly, they perched on any available surface. Manny, Quentin, and the other three humans on the observation deck froze in place, a reaction bred from thousands of stories of Kretorakians shooting anyone who moved too quickly or moved in a threatening manner. The five-pound wing creatures all wore the tiny silver vests that marked them as security forces, and each held a small entropic rifle. Manny started to sweat, and the fat on his chin quivered, but he stayed perfectly still. The rocking body consisted of, ironically, a football-shaped trunk, one end of which tapered off into a flat, two-foot-long tail, like the body of a tadpole, but with a flat tail on the horizontal plane instead of the vertical. Their bodies were different shades of red, some a solid color, some with splotchy patterns of pink or purple. Thin, short legs ended in feet with three thin, splayed toes that curled around anything available. Two pair of foot-long arms reached out from either side of the body. The upper pair were webbed with membranous, patterned wings that ran from the tip of the arm to the base of the tail. The bottom pair looked just like the first, but without the membrane. It was the bottom arms that held the deadly entropic rifles. Quentin had always found Kretorakian heads rather revolting. Three pairs of eyes lined the round head. A pair looked straight forward, a pair sat below those, and on the outside looking to the left and looking to the right, and a pair that looked straight down. Quentin Bonds, you will come with us. Only one of them spoke, while the other four simply sat, their feet shuffling back and forth. Quentin let out a slow breath and tried to calm his heart rate. Not since he'd been a child of eleven had a bat actually spoken to him. There had been a riot at the mines. When the bats came to break it up, they killed fifteen men. Good luck, my son. Manny bowed twice, in the respectful manner of the church. He handed Quentin a small plastic chip. My card. I'll be at Emperor One for a week. So if you need anything, give me a call. And you think about my offer. You'd look very photogenic at the helm of a luxury yacht. Quentin slipped the chip into his pocket. He walked out of the observation deck. The Kretorakians whipped into a hovering formation around him, surrounding him like an honor guard. An honor guard or a prison escort, Quentin thought. I got armed military guards leading me to a former prison station. Great. Just great. Somehow, his introduction to the Galactic Football League wasn't quite as glamorous as he'd expected. Chapter 3. The Combine The Combine was much smaller than Emperor 2. A featureless gray orb devoid of any color, the Combine looked the part of a prison station. The shuttle docked, and the Kretorakian escort led Quentin out. More Kretorakians were waiting inside, many more. Quentin tried to count them, but they flew so quickly and were so numerous, his eyes couldn't lock on. It was like being in the middle of a swarming flock of birds. He shuddered as he thought what it must have been like for Manny and the other human ground forces that tried to fight the Kretorakians some forty years ago. Quentin walked down the hall. It seemed as if the small flying creatures would slam into him at any moment, but they always banked left or right at the last possible second, just missing him. He walked forward, trying to ignore the little creatures that seemed to fill the tight hallway like a gas. He walked past a row of small pressure doors. His escort stopped in front of an open one. A Kretorakian perched on the doorframe seemingly waiting for them. You are Quentin Barnes. In the flesh. You are now number 113. You will answer to that number while you are at the combine. Inside you will find human clothes. Wear them. You have five minutes to prepare. Then we will begin testing. Quentin walked into the room. The door shut tight behind him. It took him only a second to realize he was in a prison cell. The only furnishing was a human-length metal shelf that stuck out from the wall at waist level. A metal toilet hung from the back wall. On the floor next to the toilet was a two-foot diameter circle of fine metal mesh. He recognized the mesh as a nanite shower. He'd used them at some of the opposing team's locker rooms in stadiums that didn't have large water supplies like McCovey. On the shelf sat a yellow, form-fitting bodysuit labeled on the chest with the number 113. Quentin looked on the back of the suit, expecting to see Barnes written in the typical block letters, but there was no name, just another 113. The suit seemed heavy. The material felt slightly lumpy, as if it were filled with microwires and various tiny electronic devices. He sighed, wondering what he was in for, and started to strip. You have been listening to The Rookie, book one of the Galactic Football League series. Produced by Ariok Morningstar with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. For more information on the author and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song, The Kids Are Coming For You, by the band Superweapon. Superweaponband.com. You gotta say